0: Today the Matt Walsh Show, Vanderbilt Hospital is right next door to us here in Nashville. And so we decided that we would investigate their transgender clinic. Yes, they drug and mutilate children, but it actually gets worse somehow. We'll talk about that today. Also, Ron DeSantis is under criminal investigation for sending illegals to Martha's Vineyard. What crime did he commit? Well, none, of course, but uh, they're claiming he committed one. And Don Lemon brings up slavery reparations and then promptly gets embarrassed. It's pretty glorious. Chrissy Teigen says that her miscarriage was actually an abortion, and she's just now realizing it. How is that possible? And our daily cancellation, The Atlantic has discovered that sex segregation in sports actually doesn't make any scientific sense at all. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. If you're in search of financial peace of mind, make sure you're not wasting money on high interest fees because they're only gonna get worse as the Fed continues to raise rates. It's important that you act now. You can get a great deal in as little as 10 days by calling American Finance and get a free mortgage review from a salary-based consultant. No pressure, no obligation, no upfront or hidden fees. Just have a simple conversation around custom loans that can fit your budget better. From better rates to shorter terms, even debt consolidation options. You could save up to $1,000 a month with American Financing. You know, we're all looking for ways to save money now, and that's why you have to uh, take advantage of any opportunity that comes up. And one way you can do that is through American Financing. But if you want to get a hold of them, here's the number you have to call, 866-569-4711. That's 866-569-4711. Don't waste any more time. Call them now at 866-569-4711 or visit AmericanFinancing.net. NMLS, 182 334 consumeraccess.org. So we've spent plenty of time in recent weeks discussing the horrific, unethical, dangerous, and barbaric practices of many hospitals and children's hospitals around the country, all being performed under the guise of gender affirmation. Now, the media has frantically insisted that we have to stop scrutinizing the medical establishment in this way. Even if hospitals are sterilizing and butchering children, the media says we must not, uh, we must not offer any critique, because if we do, we're guilty of incitement and even terrorism. So we have to remain silent, they tell us. But I've never personally been very good at following orders, especially when those orders are delivered by the soulless goblins in the national media. I'm much more inclined to do exactly the opposite of whatever they say. And in fact, all this talk about the Frankenstein butchery happening at our nation's hospitals has made us wonder about the hospital closest to us here in Nashville, uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center is the full name, Vanderbilt, we'll just call it for short. Over the past several days, we have investigated uh, the matter and now I wanna show you what we found. And let's begin at the beginning as we tell this story. So in 2018, Vanderbilt opened its Transgender Health Center. There was an article published in the Tennessean at the time that announced the new clinic, quoting its medical director, Dr. Shane Taylor, who said that the goal was to, quote, meet our patients where they are in their journey and help them with the resources they need. But then in a lecture during Vanderbilt's LGBTQ Health Grand Rounds lecture series, which uh, live streamed to Facebook, but was viewed by almost nobody at the time, Dr. Taylor was a bit more detailed in explaining the hospital's actual motivations for expanding into, quote unquote, transgender care. In fact, she said that um, she personally helped to convinced the institution to make the move based in part because uh, she claims it's the right thing to do, but also in large part because gender affirmation surgeries are, quote, big money makers. She boasted that a phalloplasty, which is the construction of an artificial penis, which uh, is made using flesh cut from other parts of the body, she said that those could be worth $100,000 when you factor in all of the follow-ups that are necessary. Listen,
1: Starting in January first of 2017, uh, according to the Affordable Care Act, insurance cover carriers are mandated to cover medical expenses for trans folks. Um, some of our BUMC financial folks in, 20, in August of 20, I'm sorry, October of 2016, starting a couple of years ago, put down some costs of how much money we think each patient would bring in, and this is only including top surgery. This isn't including any bottom surgery, and um, it's a lot of money. These surgeries make a lot of money. Uh, So female to male, chest reconstruction, can bring in $40,000. A patient just on routine hormone treatment, who I'm only seeing a few times a year, can bring in several thousand dollars because that requires a lot of visits and labs. It actually makes money for the hospital. Now these I got from the internet, um, but, it's from uh, the philadelphia center for transgender surgery which has um, does a lot of um, surgery for patients i just want to give you an idea of how much these bottom surgeries are making and this is i think this has to be an underestimate Uh, this is for a vaginoplasty they're saying they're quoting roughly around twenty thousand dollars for a vaginoplasty but that doesn't include your hospital stay that doesn't include your postdoc visits that doesn't include um, your anesthesia, your OR. So I would think that this has to be a gross underestimate. I think that's just like the surgeon's um, piece of it, which anybody who's ever been in the hospital knows that that's like 10% of it. Uh, and then the female to male bottom surgeries, these are huge money makers. Again, I think this has to be an underestimate that they're quoting around $20,000 for a phalloplasty. There's been different things that I've read that said it could be up to $100,000. Um, Dr. Winneker, who's our surgeon, says that there's entire clinics where the entire clinic is supported just by their phalloplasties. And that is like a fraction of the surgeries that they're doing. These surgeries are labor intensive. They require a lot of follow ups. They require a lot of OR time and they make money. They make money for the hospital.
0: Now, profitable though it may be, there are some medical professionals who take the Hippocratic Oath seriously and object to carving up a person's body in this way. Vanderbilt was apparently concerned that some of their own staff might fall into that category. So at another Grand Rounds lecture in 2019, a woman named Dr. Ellen Clayton, who's a pediatric specialist at Vanderbilt, told those assembled that if they refuse to participate due to their religious beliefs in these procedures, there will be consequences. Conscientious objections are problematic, she explained, and those who object really shouldn't work at Vanderbilt at all. Listen.
2: If you are going to assert conscientious objection, you have to realize that that is problematic. You are doing something to another person, and you are not paying for the the cost for your belief. I think that is a real, I mean, I think that's a real issue. So, um, So I think, you know, so you're, so yes, Vanderbilt, if someone has a conscious objection to pers- uh, for participating in this sort of surgery, it would probably have to accommodate you to the extent that you can find another person who can do your job who doesn't have an objection, other things of that nature. But I just want you to take home that saying that you're not going to do something because of your conscientious, because of your religious beliefs is not without consequences. And, and it should not be about consequences. And I just want to put that out there. We are given enormous, if you don't want to do this kind of work, don't work at Vanderbilt.
0: Now, is it legal to make those kinds of threats? I mean, can she legally promise consequences for those who exercise their First Amendment rights? Well, whether she can legally do that or not, she did. And the point was made clear, Vanderbilt just got into the gender transition game, and now it is such a central part of its core mission and its business plan that any doctor who objects is not welcome to work in the hospital at all. Yet even with these warnings, Vanderbilt is, is, uh, would seem to be deeply concerned that some of the doctors on their staff might still stick to their bigoted superstitions, like you know their belief in human biology and that sort of thing. So to solve that problem, they proudly unveiled a, a first-in-the-nation, they say, program called TransBuddy. So the Buddy program means that trans patients are paired up with an activist from the community who attends appointments with them. The Buddy initiative is, is there to, quote, observe how hospital staff are interacting and to ensure that they're using correct pronouns. A Buddy volunteer in the clip will play for you in a second even explains that some medical providers at Vanderbilt are unsafe and so they require this form of uh, babysitting. Watch.
1: My name is Sean Riley, and I am the program coordinator for TransBuddy at the Program for LGBTQ Health at Vanderbilt University. TransBuddy provides trained peer advocates for transgender patients who are coming for doctor's appointments or other healthcare related services. Whether you're looking for something that's related to medical transition, such as hormone therapy, or something completely unrelated, like breaking an arm or going to an ENT, we are here to help support any transgender patients that come through our doors. The Trans Money program was organically created through the efforts of transgender people and continues to consistently be led by trans people in Middle Tennessee. Transbody program is a one of a kind in the nation and institutions are looking to Vanderbilt to replicate and expand programs like ours. We're not seeking to find solutions often for people's problems. We're just seeking to be there and to accompany and to be a friendly face. Um, and to be a non-medical face in a in a place where everybody coming in the room is gonna be a healthcare provider and, and may be unsafe. Sometimes I'm there to be um... Sort of uh, always observing kind of how hospital staff are um, interacting with individuals and again, you know, using correct pronouns or treating the individual with respect.
0: So this is less a buddy program than a big brother program, though of course they would never use such a gendered term. And we did check and confirm that Vanderbilt makes their Orwellian trans buddies available to patients of any age, including minors. In fact, a trans buddy may help shepherd a child through many types of services, all provided by the hospital's pediatric gender clinic. Uh, Vanderbilt administers chemical castration drugs, a.k.a. puberty blockers, and irreversible hormone therapy to minors. Though sometime in the last month or two, interestingly enough, they removed language from their website explicitly advertising this practice. We had to look it up on the archived version of the website. We found it there, but not the current version. Yet they may have forgotten to delete a video from Vanderbilt Psychiatry's YouTube channel back in 2020, which admits explicitly that they will give and have given irreversible hormone drugs to children as young as 13. Listen.
1: We can provide gender-affirming hormones on an individual who is on a pubertal blocker, depending on whatever kind of blocker they've chosen or we have discussed with them, or they can present to us at a later stage of puberty, and then we provide the gender-affirming hormones. Previously, the Endocrine Society recommended to start these at age 16, but we all know that would be delayed puberty, right? Not 16-year-olds don't start puberty. So more recently, they did update that to say as early as 14 for compelling reasons. So we have some individuals who have started gender-affirming hormones at 13 or 14 to be more like their peers. Again, fertility preservation and consent are very important to discuss prior to any initiation. of these.
0: For compelling reasons, and I think we can probably assume that uh, they've never met a reason that was not compelling to them. So after they've drugged and sterilized the kids, Vanderbilt, as explained in this video presentation by plastic surgeon Julian Winnicore and physician's assistant Vander Vanderblomen, at that point, they will happily perform double mastectomies on adolescent girls.
1: So when we, when we talk about the WPATH guidelines, so in order for our patients to really um, successfully undergo these surgeries, we do, uh, again, follow these guidelines. So a lot of times it's for insurance purposes, um, but again, insurance is kind of follow suit with the WPATH guidelines for the most part. So for any kind of top surgery, uh, we do require one letter of persistent, well-documented gender dysphoria by a licensed mental health provider. Um, we ensure that the patient is capable of making uh, fully informed decisions on the, their own. They're the age of majority. However, for a lot of our younger patients, um, again, if they are 16, 17 here at Vanderbilt, um, if they have been on testosterone, have a parental consent, um, we're able to do a lot of the top surgeries for those patients.
0: Hmm. So let's review. Vanderbilt got into the gender transition, transition game, admittedly, in large part because it's very financially profitable, and it is. They then threatened any staff members who objected and then enlisted a gang of trans activists to act as surveillance in order to force compliance. And they now castrate, sterilize, and mutilate children as well as adults while apparently taking steps to hide this activity from the public view, which is why we had to sift through web archives and track down videos not available to the general public just to confirm all of this information. We're left in the end, once again, with a stark reality that the field of medicine has been infiltrated and co-opted by radical ideologues, by left-wing cultists and LGBT extremists. Vanderbilt, like so many other medical institutions, has sacrificed both science and ethics on the altar of gender ideology. And we who object are labeled terrorists. But that is the desperate tactic of a system that knows it is being exposed. We can't allow ourselves to be bullied by those kinds of intimidation tactics and emotional blackmail. We are confronting one of the great evils in human history. There's no question about it. And nobody said it would be easy or painless. And if they did, they were lying. Either way, we have to hold the line. Let's get to the five headlines. Using the internet without ExpressVPN, well, it's like uh, leaving your keys in the car while you run into the market for a snack. Most of the time, you're probably fine. No one's gonna try to steal your car. Uh, Well, I mean, these days, pretty likely that they will. And it only takes once anyway. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in a cafe, a hotel, or an airport, any hacker on the same network can access your personal data. So it's just like leaving the keys in the car. That means your passwords, your financial details, etc. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to hack somebody. All these guys need are cheap hardware and access to YouTube. Um, my, my kid could do well. My kids couldn't do it. They've never they don't know what YouTube is. But a lot of kids could do it. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. So that hackers can uh, can't steal your sensitive data, it would take the most experienced hacker with the best equipment available to get uh, over. You know, and they also, by the way, need a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. So I think you're probably pretty safe. I like ExpressVPN because it's incredibly easy to use. I just fire up the app, click one button and uh, I'm free to troll. I mean, uh, roam the internet, I should say. Plus, it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, so I can stay secure when I'm on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com walsh. That's e-x-p-r-e-s-s vpn.com walsh, and you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com walsh now. So Bexar County Sheriff Javier Salazar in Texas has announced that he is opening up a criminal investigation into the matter of uh, Ron DeSantis sending illegals to Martha's Vineyard. And you may be asking, uh, why is a guy in Texas doing this, number one? What, what law was broken? What evidence is there that a crime was committed? These are all the questions that you may have. And fortunately, the sheriff is here to not answer any of them. Let's listen. We
3: are opening up a case uh, with an investigation with regard to the suspected uh, activities involving the 48 migrants from Venezuela that, as we understand it at this point, the facts of the case at this point, are that on uh, Wednesday, September 14th, uh, here in Bexar County in the city of San Antonio, uh, our understanding is that a Venezuelan migrant uh, was paid a, a, what we would call a bird dog fee to recruit approximately 50 migrants from the area around a migrant resource center on San Pedro uh, here in San Antonio. Uh, as we understand it, 48 migrants were uh, lured, and I will use the word lured, uh, under false pretenses uh, into, into staying at a hotel for a couple of days. Uh, they were taken by airplane. At a certain point, they were shuttled to an airplane. Uh, where they were flown to Florida and then eventually flown to Martha's Vineyard again under false pretenses is the the information that we have. That they were promised work, they were promised the solution to several of their problems. They were taken to uh, Martha's Vineyard from what from what we can gather uh, for nothing for little more than a photo op, video op, and then they were unceremoniously stranded in Martha's Vineyard.
0: Stranded. In Martha's vineyard. I mean, they were uh, it's like you might as well drop them on a desert island. They're gonna starve to death. Now, he didn't actually explain, and we could you could keep listening to that, but there's no reason, because he doesn't explain what laws were broken, which you know, if you're launching a criminal investigation, then that's the first thing you should be able to explain, is that we believe this law and that law and that law were broken, that's why we're looking into it. So this is a criminal investigation where even the person conducting the investigation, as far as he knows, no laws were broken. There's no, there's no theory here at all of what laws were broken. Daily Wire has the response from the DeSantis camp. says a spokesperson for DeSantis responded to Salazar's remarks by saying in a statement, immigrants have been more than willing to leave Bexar County after being abandoned, homeless, and left to fend for themselves. Uh, Florida gave them an opportunity to see greener pastures in a sanctuary jurisdiction that offered greater resources for them, as we expected. Unless the uh, Massachusetts National Guard has abandoned these individuals, they've been provided accommodations, sustenance, clothing, and more options to succeed succeed following their unfair enticement into the United States, unlike the 53 immigrants who died in a truck found abandoned in Bexar County this June. Uh, I think that gets the point across. You want to talk about luring immigrants. Well, yeah, there's there's, there's the way in which immigrants are lured across the border to begin with by the kind of policies that this sheriff, because he's a Democrat, certainly supports. And we know what happens there. As the statement from DeSantis' camp mentions, 53 immigrants, it's just one example, of the many, just like the untold human wreckage that, that there is because of our open borders policies. Wreckage on that side of the border and this, which has it, it affected both illegal immigrants and citizens of this country and that's all because they're lured across the border to begin with. Um, the promises that DeSantis made them, was it wasn't, it wasn't really DeSantis making those promises. It was uh, it's Martha's Vineyard made the promises. When you declare yourself to be a sanctuary, you're, you're promising to take care of immigrants. And so DeSantis said, well, they said they'd take care of you. So we're, we're bringing you to a very wealthy and very nice, beautiful place where they said they would take care of you. All of that is totally accurate. So what's really happening here? Uh, Well, it's simple, obviously. DeSantis had a political victory with this move, and the Democrats know it. So they're seeking the only remedy they ever seek anymore, which which is criminal prosecution. That's their retaliation. That's the advantage when you own the system, is that when you get beat, you can always just try to throw somebody in jail for it. What crime did he commit? Well, the actual crime he committed is he embarrassed Democrats. And worse than that, he embarrassed Democrats who live in Martha's Vineyard. And uh, those are the ones you're not supposed to embarrass. So that's the crime. Speaking of people getting embarrassed, this is a great moment on Don Lemon's show as it's uh, his doomed, unfortunately doomed show, as it staggers towards the end of its, of its run. Uh, a great moment, not for Don Lemon himself, but for anyone who happens to watch the clip. I think it's great. So just, uh, just watch this. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth and you hear about it comes as England is facing rising cost of living, a living crisis, austerity budget
4: cuts, and so on. And then you have those who are asking uh, for reparations
0: for colonialism, and they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back, and, uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are...
5: 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffing cages. Absolutely. That's where... They should start, and maybe I don't know the descendants of those families where they died at the, in the high seas trying to stop the slavery. That those families should receive something too. I think at the same time.
0: It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to, to discuss in the future. <laughs> it's, it is an interesting discussion. He was so out of his league. He was so out of his league, and he knew you could see it on his face. Uh, you got to you have to actually see the clip. Just you could see him. You, it's he's he's it's subtle, but. You can tell he's internally panicking because he's thinking, like, this is not the response I was expecting at all. I don't even know what she's talking about. Oh, I'm, this is someone who actually knows something about history. I, I'm screwed. And so he, he bails out of there as fast as he can. Um, and it's, uh, and it's, it's just it's fantastic. And everything that she's saying, of course, is 100% correct. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad. You know, it seems like there's been a lot of discussion in recent days and weeks about slavery. And uh, which, which maybe doesn't seem different from any other time because we're constantly talking about it. But the difference now over the last couple of uh, weeks anyway is that we're actually talking about the historical realities of slavery rather than the cartoonish sort of version that we get from people like Don Lemon. Because usually, you know, the media, they decide the terms for the, for any, for the discussion of slavery or any, any historical evil. They set the terms for it. And the terms are always, we're only going to talk about, uh, about this evil in the context of um, you know, when white Americans and Europeans were perpetrating it. That's the only, that's all, that's all we're worried about. It seems like with, we had uh, Bill Maher yesterday and now this clip. Now it's like we're, we're expanding a little bit. We're finally acknowledging that actually there's, there's more to the story than just that. And this is not a, this is not whataboutism, it's not a gotcha to point out what was previously an unspeakable fact that the ways, the the, the way that Africans ended up on the ships in the transatlantic slave trade is because they were captured and sold by Africans. And that's the reality. I mean, for the most part, uh, Europeans were not wading into the interior of Africa to take slaves and cart them out. Now you might be able to find examples of that, but that is that would not have been a feasible um, plan in in most cases. And the transatlantic Atlanta slave trade could not have become what it was if that's the way it worked. No, in fact, you had you had African kingdoms that were very happy. I mean, they got the slaves, they gathered them together, as she mentions, they had them in cages, sitting there on the beach, waiting for people to stop by and buy them. So if we are going to talk about reparations for slavery, that should be part of it. You know, we need to know who, who are are you descended from uh, do you descend from a slave or do you potentially descend from one of the people that captured slave and sold them? Of course the problem is that almost all of us, if you trace our lineage back far enough, almost all of us are descended both from people involved in perpetrating slavery and for people that were from people who were victims of it. It's almost every single person on earth. We're descended from both. We have both in our in our blood. So if you can inherit that guilt, if you can inherit guilt and you can inherit victimhood, then we're in a very confusing situation because we have we have we, most of us have both. We have inherited guilt and victimhood. What do we do with that? Well, I tell you what we do with it. We we move on with our lives and we live in the present, rather than trying to cash in on the sufferings of our ancestors, sufferings that we did not experience. And it's also true that um, not only was, um, not only were the British among the first to abolish slavery. I mean, it's one thing to abolish it. There are other places. Haiti, for example, there was a slave riot rebellion. Um, but it's not just that the british abolished it it's that they they went out they then went out on the high seas and tried to put put an end to it they tried to stop it they tried to stop anyone else from doing it and they sacrificed their lives in doing so i mean they they fought to get rid of slavery across the entire world and they did that uh you know against the objections of arab slave traders african slave traders and plenty of white slave traders, too. Yeah, you know, I think I mentioned before when we had this conversation a few weeks ago that, uh, and there are many stories like this, but um, in particular, you know, the, the, the Arab slave traders were brutal and, and vicious. And there are many uh, stories you read about from history where, uh, because the, you know, the British, they were patrolling and, and they were looking out for slave ships. And uh, if they were on their way, you know, if there was Arab slave traders and they were out on the, on, on, on the, the seas and they, they saw a, a British ship coming their way, um, they would oftentimes just kill the slaves and dump them overboard so they didn't have to suffer the consequences and they could pretend that they weren't slavers. So that's really what makes Europeans and, you know, uh, Unique in their relationship with slavery. What, what makes it unique is actually going out and trying to free people from slavery actively. Yeah, most countries in the world eventually, although some took a while to do it, especially some countries in Africa and uh, and in the Middle East. But most countries eventually got around to getting rid of slavery. Sometimes it's because there was a slave revolt. Sometimes they it just it didn't it wasn't economically feasible anymore. But when you look at the countries that fought wars over it, people sacrificed their lives to get rid of this institution. Well, that's what makes the British unique. That's what makes uh, America unique. Another note I wanted to make, too, and I've seen a few people point this out, and I I think it's important because we've seen complaints from Americans about, uh, well, Queen Elizabeth you know, her funeral yesterday and about all sort of the, the, the pageantry and all the money that's spent on it. And that's where this conversation started with Don Lemon. Um, and we've seen these complaints of pe- people, you know, Americans kind of scoffing at the way uh, the British are, are, are weeping over the death of the queen. Well, if you think that looks absurd, if that looks absurd to you, imagine how it appears to them and to everybody else in the world or how it appeared to them when they looked over at America and saw the same sort of pageantry and over-the-top weeping and mourning over the death of somebody like George Floyd. Okay, so yeah, I mean, they they are weeping and, and, and mourning the death of Queen Elizabeth, who's one of the most significant figures of the 20th century and the 21st. But it's not like we don't engage in similar kind of uh, theatrics here in this country. The difference is just who earns those theatrics. So you could take Queen Elizabeth's uh, resume and all the ways that she contributed to history and then compare that to George Floyd, who did what exactly? Nothing. Maybe I mean, nothing of, of value with his life. He terrorized and victimized members of his own community, and then he died high on drugs after trying to pass off a counterfeit bill. We give him monuments. He had multiple memorial services and funerals and people. Remember the the Minneapolis mayor falling to his knees, weeping at George Floyd's casket? So if it seems silly to you when you see people doing that for Queen Elizabeth and you say, well, they didn't even know her. What What are they crying about? What about hundreds, thousands of people showed up to George Floyd's memorial in tears? Didn't know him, never met him. And if they ever did meet him, they probably would not have liked him because he was a scumbag criminal. So just uh, kind of putting things in perspective there, I think. We played some clips yesterday from that 60 Minutes interview with uh, President Biden, but we somehow missed this one. I don't know, this is the best one. And... uh, And I don't know how he missed it, but he was asked about his mental acuity. You know, does he have have what he needs mentally? Does he have the mental tools to continue to be president, to run for re-election? And here's his answer. I think this is an answer.
4: You are the oldest president ever.
0: Pretty good shape, huh?
4: Which leads to my next question. You are more aware of this than anyone. Some people ask whether you are fit for the job. And when you hear that, I wonder what you think. Watch me. I mean, honest to God, that's all I think. Watch me. If you think I don't have the energy level or the mental acuity, then, then you know, that's one thing. That's another thing of just watching and, you know, keep my schedule. Do what I'm doing. I, I think that... Uh, you know, uh, I don't, when I sit down with our NATO allies and keep them together, I don't have them saying, wait a minute, how, how old are you, what did they say? You know, I mean, it's a matter of, you know, that old expression, the proof of the pudding's is in the eating. I mean, I, I, I respect the fact that people would say, you know, you're old. and But I think it relates to h- how much energy you have and whether or not the job you're doing is one consistent with what any person of any age would be able to do. How would you say your mental focus is? Well, it's focused. (laughs) I I think it's, I I haven't, look, I have trouble even mentioning, even saying to myself, my own head, the number of years. I no more think of myself as being as old as I am than fly. I mean, it's just not, uh, uh, I haven't observed anything in terms of, there's not things I don't do now that I did before whether it's physical or mental or anything else,
0: he reminds me. He reminds me of a, like a drunk guy at a sobriety checkpoint trying to convince the cop he's sober. And the more he talks, it's like, dude, you should have just quit. It's short and sweet. When oh, you're in that position, short and sweet. Yeah, give short answers. The more you talk, the worse it gets. You <laughs> got Biden like mental acuity. Come on, no one is more acuity acuity than this. No one is. I'm the most mental man. Come on. Uh, so that should make you feel good about the state of uh, you know, the country's in good hands, as we see once again. The Only Wire has this report. Sports Illustrated swimsuit model Chrissy Teigen responded to the backlash against her as she dared critics to do your worst after she recently announced that her miscarriage was actually an abortion. The 36-year-old hit back at negative comments that started flooding the official Instagram account of Glamour, a magazine that published Teigen's account. Or comments, rather, about the death of her 20 week old unborn child named Jack. Tegan took a screenshot of many of the responses, with some calling her a drama queen and a liar, and others accusing her of trying to stay relevant. She then tweeted the message that read, I knew this would happen, and honestly, I've already seen you do your worst, so if this makes you feel better, great. It doesn't make me feel worse, though. The backlash comes following Tegan's comments at the Proper Daily's A Day of Unreasonable Conversation Summit, where she Labeled her miscarriage in 2020 an abortion. Um, Tegan shared quite quote: Two years ago when I was pregnant with Jack, John, and my third child, uh, I had to make a lot of difficult and heartbreaking decisions. When I was pregnant with Jack, John, and my third child. She's pregnant with I don't understand that. It became very clear around halfway through that he would not survive and that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't either without any medical intervention let's just call it what it was. It was an abortion, an abortion to save my life for a baby that has absolutely no chance. And to be honest, I never, ever put that together until actually a few months ago. I told the world we had a miscarriage. The world agreed we had a miscarriage. All the headlines said it was a miscarriage. And I became really frustrated that I didn't in the first place say it was what it was. And I felt silly that it had taken me over a year to actually understand that we had an abortion. So this is a bizarre story in many ways. And let me just say to begin with that um, you know, you get this from uh, celebrities all the time, especially from Chrissy from, from Chrissy Teigen, She's, she kind of specializes in this, where she'll they'll announce something personal about their lives that nobody asked them to announce. They didn't have to say it. Um, but they tell the world, and then people have opinions about it, and they get offended, and they play the victim. The thing is, once you have presented something to the world, information you didn't have to present, once you've done that, then people are going to have opinions because people have opinions about everything. Any, any piece of information someone comes across, they they form they have a perspective that they bring to it, and they're going to have their own perspective. And so if you don't want anyone's perspective on a personal detail about your life, don't tell anybody. And that's even more the case when you're using a, something from your life and you're injecting it. Into the to to a to a, a a contentious subject like abortion, so you are drawing this connection. You're bringing this up to the public, and then you play the victim and also the hero. Do your worst. Everyone making Nate. Like, what do you think was going to happen? Well, you knew that was going to happen, and it also it doesn't make any sense. Now I don't know, I don't know exactly what happened with uh, this this pregnancy and how it ended. I don't know. I wasn't there. What I do know, though, is as she admits, as she acknowledges, she announced that it was a miscarriage. And she even, if I remember correctly, there were pictures that, that she took of her cradling her child, who was deceased, in her arms. And uh, she, she posted the pictures and said, we had a miscarriage. It's a terrible thing. And it is a terrible thing. You know, we've been through this in my family, and it, it's awful. So that's what we know. And now she says, well, I, I didn't realize at the time that it was an abortion. Well, what I, how could you not realize something was an abortion if that's what it was? Because, well, an abortion is the intentional direct destruction of the child. It's like you go in and kill the child. That's what an abortion is. And also, I've, I've never heard of an abortion. I mean, now, this get, now we get very grim and dark when thinking about this. But have you ever heard of an abortion where they, they kill the child and then give the child's dead body to you to take pictures with? That, that doesn't happen in an abortion clinic. Um, so none of this makes sense, and, and certainly, if if you had the child directly killed through abortion, you would know it. There's no looking back on it two years later and saying, "Oh, you know what? Maybe that was an abortion." There's, there's, there's no confusion about what's happening. So it seems to me, what has happened here, if I'm to make sense of this, and again, I I you know we we all. Are within our rights to try to make sense of it. She's the one who's presented this to the world. She didn't have to, and she did. So, it seems to me what's happened is that there was a terrible health complication with the child. They had to deliver the child early, uh, too early for the child to survive, and so and and he died tragically. Um, it, it seems like that's what happened, and then that also explains how she. We had the pictures of her holding the child. But that's not an abortion, though. See, this is the point. That is not an abortion. I mean, there, there are times, and we've always acknowledged this, there are times when there could be a, a, a medical crisis in the, in the middle of a pregnancy, something that affects the child or the mother, and uh, it becomes clear that the pregnancy cannot continue. The pregnancy has to be ended in order to preserve the life of the mother. That can certainly happen. It's not common, it's rare, but it does happen. Well, if you end the pregnancy... By delivering the child without first killing the child intentionally, that's a delivery. That is not an abortion. An abortion, by definition, is the direct, intentional, physical killing of the child. If that does not happen, then there was no abortion. And if you have to deliver a child early to preserve the life of the mother, knowing almost certainly that the child will not be able to survive being delivered that early, that's still not an abortion. That's the principle of double effect. That is, you know, you're. You're you're, you're you're taking an action, you're delivering the child, not intending at all to kill the child, but yet that, that ends up being a result of that action. But that's not your intention. It's not why you're doing it. You're doing it to, for a good reason, to preserve the mother's life. So it's an act of preservation. It's not murder. So that is what would make sense of this to me. But then, so, so why are you coming back two years later and saying, you know what, I'm counting that as an abortion? It would really seem like you're using this terrible tragedy that happened to you and your child to make a political point. All right, before we get to the comment section, here's a clip um, I want to show for you. This, this, is, this is from Amazon's Lord of the Rings show that has gone, it's kind of gone viral and some people are talking about it. Um, I still haven't seen the show and I don't plan on it because I do judge it and dismiss it based entirely on this scene. I wasn't excited about watching in the first place. I was kind of thinking about maybe I'll sit down and, and watch it. I saw this scene and f- on this basis alone, I'm not watching the show and I know that might seem, well, how can you judge a show based on one scene? I think actually you can. So let's just go through, let's watch this clip together. Go ahead and play it. All right, so you got four guards full in suits of armor. And they take this girl out of the cell. I think, who is that? Galadriel or something? Is that her name?
4: Step forward.
0: And she goes, oh, she's not looking happy. She's looking very intimidating. What's gonna happen? They're surrounding her. What's gonna happen now? Oh, she knows what she's gonna do. And then she, oh, she pushes the guy away. And she slaps know. the other guy.
4: Well now we cut back. away.
0: What's happening? What's ha-
4: if you knew exactly where she was
0: going. And now she's shoving all the guards into a jail cell. Cause she's very pleased with herself as she walks off. Girl power. That's girl power. Okay. So that's the scene. Now, let's, let's go through this again. She comes out, surrounded by four guards, all bigger than her, fully armored. And they go to put handcuffs on her. She pushes one away. And then the camera cuts away. And next thing you know... She's pushing them all single file into a cell, a cell that, by the way, was just closed. So she had to she had to open the cell. I don't know how it, they cut the camera cut away for five seconds. I don't know how she did all this in five seconds, but but somehow she was able to physically defeat four guys that were surrounding her in five seconds and shoved them all into a jail cell that was. So she had to open the the cell that was just closed. She had to go and open it, and then I guess with one hand she's opening a cell, and with with, with another hand. She's shoving four guys into the cell. But how was that? Were they just waiting there? It was like, were they, were they sitting around waiting, one attack? So this is what you usually see. Now, this is a common thing in action films, I admit, but, but it, it's even more common if it's an action scene where the woman, where it's the kick-ass, well, we're doing, the kick-ass woman routine. What you'll find is that there's some chivalry on the part of the bad guys, because what they'll usually do is even if there's 20 of them surrounding her, they'll, they'll only attack one at a time. And if they get hit once, they're, they're out. So the one guy atta- the one goon attacks, gets kicked once in the face, and he, and he just lies down. He's not going to get up again. And then another guy goes, and another guy goes, very polite. And in this case, you got to give some credit again to the bad guys, that uh, they were polite, um, not only in not attacking her all at once, but actually when she, she opened the cell door and said, get in a single file line, and they did. And she just, she just coaxed them in, and they, they just walked in. Into the cell. That's a wonderful scene. Yes, I on that I don't you don't need to tell me anything else about the show. And I know there are gonna be people, how could you dismiss the show? It's one scene. No. Nah. I mean that scene tells me okay, it, it might be an okay show. It might be fine. That's kind of what I'm hearing about the Lord of the Rings show. It's fine, it's a fine show. But fine is not good enough when you're when your source material is one of the great, you know, works of fantasy of all time. Okay, let's get to the uh, comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. I love finding easy ways to support a healthy routine, which is why I'm so excited about tart cherry gummies. From the makers of Super Beet, Heart Shoes, tart cherry gummies are an easy way to reduce inflammation from exercise and support your metabolic health. These gummies are made with a clinically um, studied tart cherry extract that is up to 40 times more concentrated than many other tart cherry extracts. Just two tart cherry gummies are the antioxidant equivalent of 16 ounces of tart cherry juice, or 100 cherries, formulated by a team of scientists led by a Nobel Prize-winning doctor. Um, Tart cherry has been clinically studied to support metabolic health. I had tart cherry gummies for the first time the other day after finishing up a workout, and I could really feel the difference. I could tell you that. Tart cherry gummies come with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Try them risk-free for 90 days and see how you feel. If you don't love them, send them back. No questions asked, but I think you will love them. I know I did. Right now, you can get up to 35% off tart cherry gummies plus free shipping at mytartcherry.com Walsh. That's mytartcherry.com Walsh. This is their best offer available anywhere. That's MyTartCherry.com slash Walsh for up to 35% off. MyTartCherry.com slash Walsh. These statements and products have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or condition. JS says, not only is this teacher aroused by the thought of himself as a woman, he's also aroused by the idea of dragging these kids into his sex fantasy like a flasher would be. This is creepy. Uh, Yeah, you're right, and that's also an important point with this teacher in Canada yesterday with the big giant fake breasts that he was wearing to, to school. Uh, it's a fetish, as we talked about. This is not dysphoria, okay? This is not like he, he, he sees himself as a woman with um, breasts the size of watermelons. No, this is just, this is a fantasy. He likes to see himself that way. But apparently for him, part of the fantasy is not only dressing this way, but dressing this way in front of kids. And the other point, I think, I don't know if anyone makes this in the comment section we read here, but um, it, it's also relevant to point out, this is a shop teacher. And I can remember shop class when I was a kid. And there are all kinds of safety regulations. Like one of them is don't, don't wear really loose-fitting clothing, that sort of thing. So there is no way that these enormous hot air balloon size uh, fake breasts are... You know, Up to code for the the safety codes in shop class. So putting everything else aside, how is it at all, how is that allowed on the grounds of safety to wear those things? In shop class. There's even a video, I think we played the video yesterday. He's showing the kids how to how to use a he's using a circular saw with these enormous fake prosthetic breasts on. Mac Brown says, "Not going to lie, every single one of, my, one of my friends back in high school would have been crying, trying to contain their laughter during every single class, even the ones that ended up being extremely left-wing. There were just certain things we all agreed were hilarious back in the distant days of the early 2000s, and beach ball-sized fake breasts were definitely one of them. Pretty sure we would have all been tarred, feathered, and crucified under today's standards. I did have the same question. Now, you know, you have to, you have to put yourself in the kids' shoes here, and, and they're, they're in a different environment, right? And." Uh, it's not fair that they're put in this position at all. They're, it's obviously really awkward and embarrassing for them. But they're also in an environment where they've been told that if they laugh about it, then they're just, that's a hate crime. And they could get expelled from school probably to deny someone's uh, lived experience and their gender identity. So that's the world that they're in. So we don't blame them for not laughing hysterically, but it is just another sign of the times. Yeah, I can only imagine when I was in high school, the same time period, early 2000s, a male teacher walks in and one of those, we would not be, it would be, in some ways it would be the greatest thing that ever happened because it would, we would not stop laughing about it. We would, you would, if, we, if that happened to your freshman in high school, it, it, that's, you'd be laughing about that until your graduation and beyond. Um, and that in fact is the appropriate response to absurdity. And I know the left would say, "Well, that's bullying. You shouldn't laugh at someone." Um, no, you should. When someone is being absurd like that, and it's a lot of other things besides absurd, it's perverse and abusive and everything else, but it's also absurd. And the appropriate response to absurdity is to laugh at it. We should actually teach our kids to laugh at it. You should teach your kid. I would be if I had a kid in class, if I had a kid in school. Teacher comes in like that, Um, first I would be proud of my, my child for laughing. If they pointed and laughed and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I would be so, I would be proud of them. I'd take them out for ice cream afterwards and say, yes, that's exactly the way to respond. And the next time you see someone dressed like that, do exactly the same thing again. That is the correct response. Correct. But the next thing I'd be doing as the parent is I'd be marching down to the school and saying, get that pervert out of the classroom. Okay, no, you are not going to have a teacher acting out their sex fetish in front of my my child. That's not going to happen. So that's the other question I have. Where are the parents here? And maybe they showed up. We don't really know. But it is Canada, so I have my doubts. I mean, every parent in that school should have should be showing up at the school and saying, fire that person. Don't let them anywhere near my kid again. Um, let's see. Jarcher says, that granny is on par with rap legends such as Pooh Shiesty and Spot'em Got'em. Truly wonderful. I would put her, I think she's in the conversation. Yeah, the, uh, rapping right-wing grand pro-life grandmother from yesterday. I'd put her, if we're going to start ranking, and I know this gets controversial, you start ranking the great, greatest rappers of all time. I also, I don't pretend to be necessarily an expert on the subject, but um, I think if we're doing a top five, you know, you got your you got Spot'em Got'em. That's my number one and two. I'm putting Rapping Granny at probably number three all time. Um, Takashi 6'9", he's number four. And those are all the rappers I could name. The time is upon us for another Backstage, which is happening tonight at 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern. And it's about time because there's uh, more news than ever to discuss. If you've never seen Backstage before, it's where I get together with... My Daily Wire cohorts, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Andrew Claven, and God King Jeremy Boring. I like that. They're, they're my cohorts. That's that's the, the hierarchy we're establishing, which for this read, which is good. We have a roundtable discussion on the most burning topics of the day. Jokes will be cracked, cigars will be smoked, libations will be imbibed, plus will be Reuniting with our good friend Candace Owens, who's back with exciting news and ready to tick off leftists more than ever. You definitely don't want to miss this one. So tune in to join us for backstage tonight at 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern at dailywireplus.com. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, Jack Turbin is a prominent doctor and professor who's amassed many academic and professional accolades. He's published studies and written pieces for the New York Times, the Washington Post, many other outlets. He's also a moron, and worse than a moron, in fact, Jack Turbin merely pretends, I think, to be stupid and confused. Um, He's one of the medical community's most outspoken advocates for child gender transition. He pushes to have children sterilized and castrated as young as possible. He claims that puberty blockers are completely reversible, which is a lie. He claims that they merely put puberty on hold, which is also a lie. He downplays the risk that children may come to regret the irreversible changes made to their body during, quote, transition. He absurdly insists that refusing to mutilate or drug a gender-confused child is a form of conversion therapy. Now, if Turbin really believed all of this, he he would be a moron, and that's what he would be. But Uh, You It's simply one of the dumbest human beings walking the face of the earth, in fact, is what he would be. But to focus merely on the idiocy of the gender ideology brigade is to ignore their abject wickedness. Jack Turbin may be a profoundly stupid man, but let that not distract us from the fact that he's also deeply evil and dishonest. And yet, this stupid, bad, evil, dishonest fraud has credentials, lots of them. What he lacks in brain cells and integrity, he makes up for with degrees. That was essentially the point yesterday when he tweeted, quote, four years at Harvard, five years at Yale, three more years at Harvard, two years at Stanford, but Karen has some thoughts about sex chromosomes. Now, his point is simple. How dare you peons approach him with talk of biology and chromosomes and the binary nature of sex? Jack Turbin spent nearly a decade and a half in Ivy League schools. He knows more than you. At least he has lots of very expensive pieces of paper framed and hanging on his wall, declaring that he knows more than you. But in reality, of course, Jack Turbin studied in our country's most prestigious academic institutions for nearly 15 years, and yet knows less about biology than my three-year-old daughter, which is not something he should be bragging about. But this is all the gender ideology side has going for it. They do not have truth or common sense or rationality or moral decency. Their views are so insane that they won't even try to defend them publicly. They advocate for things that are so horrific and brutal that they'll accuse you of incitement simply for talking about it. As if to say, like, we know that this thing that we're doing is so terrible that if people see it, they're 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 just going to instinctively react violently to it. They try to hide behind the shield of credentialism, hoping that you'll surrender your common sense and submit to their agenda based simply on their academic resumes. They make wild, indefensible claims and expect that you will agree or at least shut up and acquiesce because they they have letters after their names and you don't. They try to make very simple things seem very complicated so that you will be convinced that only scholars and academics are qualified to discuss them. And that brings us finally to a recent article in The Atlantic titled Separating Sports by Sex Doesn't Make Sense. Yes, author Maggie Mertens in The Atlantic has declared that the thing which made sense to everyone everywhere since always actually doesn't make sense at all. And she will enlist a couple of academics to help convince you, hoping you won't notice how stupid they all sound. So she writes, quote, school sports are typically sex segregated. And in America, some of them have even come to be seen as either traditionally for boys or traditionally for girls. Think football, wrestling, field hockey, volleyball. However, it's becoming more common for these lines to blur, especially as Gen Zers are more likely than members of previous generations to reject a strict gender binary altogether. Yeah, I wonder why Gen Z is rejecting a gender binary. Could it be because they've been told from birth that there is no binary? We often hear this from the left. I mean, I heard it when we were filming What is a Woman? We got this a lot that, um, well, look at Gen Z. You know, they get it. Let's follow their lead. They're taking the lead on this. But first of all, I'm not inclined to follow the lead of a generation that's been on this planet the shortest amount of time and knows the least about it. But also, Gen Z is only following, they themselves are following the lead of the people who indoctrinated them. So the indoctrinators are indoctrinating Gen Z and then turning around and saying, look at that, Gen Z, Z—they you get it. I mean, if, if they can see it, then why can't all you people? Well, it's because they're just parroting what you told them. Continuing, it says, Maintaining this binary in youth sports reinforces the idea that boys are inherently bigger, faster, and stronger than girls in a competitive setting, a notion that's been challenged by scientists for years. Decades of research have shown that sex is far more complex than we may think. Challenged by scientists? What scientists? Now, Mertens links to a study that she, of course, assumes nobody will take the time to read. It was co-authored by a woman named Sari Van Anders, who is described in her online bio as, quote, a leader in feminist bioscience, along with Zach Scudson, who's a doctoral student in women's studies. So these are the people, two other authors on on the study as well with similar credentials. But the study itself says nothing, proves nothing, and simply talks in circles, often contradicting itself. For example, it begins by establishing that sex and gender are, quote, overlapping, yet they are distinct categories. But then the study ends with this sentence in their conclusion. One may therefore question the use of biology to justify ongoing segregation by gender slash sex because biology does not support a gender binary and instead highlights that sex is multifaceted. Wait. Biology does not support a gender binary but highlights that sex is multifaceted? But you... Those are two different things you just you said. Those are two different categories. See, this is the trick. Gender and sex are two different concepts in one moment, and in the next, they're used interchangeably. It's all nonsense meant to confuse rather than enlightened. enlightened. They can't prove any of their assertions, but they can attempt to make you so confused that you just give up and stop challenging their ideas. The article continues... Quote, and those sex differences in sports show advantages for men, researchers today still don't know how much of this is, to, is to, uh, attributed to biological differences versus the lack of support provided to women uh, to reach their highest potential. Quote, science is increasingly showing how sex is dynamic. It has multiple aspects and also shifts. For example, social experiences can actually change levels of sex-related hormones like testosterone in our bodies, in a second-to-second and month-to-month way, Sari Van Anders, the research chair in social neuroendocrinology at Queen's University in Ontario, told me by email. The insistence on separating sports teams strictly by sex is backwards, argues Michaela Musto, an assistant sociology professor at the University of British Columbia, who has studied the effect of the gender binary on students and young athletes. Quote, part of the reason why we have this belief that boys are inherently stronger than girls, and even the fact that we believe that gender is a binary, is because of sport itself, not the other way around. She told me by phone. The strict sex segregation we've instilled in sports at all levels gives the impression that men and women have completely different capabilities. But in reality, she said, the relationship between sex and athletic capability is never so cut and dried. So this is what they're going with. There are no inherent differences between the sexes. But if there are, it's only because of social conditioning. It is social conditioning which makes men, on average, faster, stronger, quicker. Social conditioning gives men better endurance. I suppose we can assume that social condition, conditioning also makes men taller. I mean, that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons they have an advantage in some sports like basketball, is that on average they're a lot taller. Is that because of, uh, of uh, women haven't had the support they need from society to grow taller? There are literally hundreds of physical differences between the sexes. It's not just a matter of testosterone levels. The differences encompass height, weight, bone density, muscle mass, etc. All of these differences give men the edge in competitive sports. Are these all social conditioning? Is it a lack of support in athletic programs that leads to women having lower bone mass? Thus, by the way, making them more susceptible to injury? Does that also explain why similar physical differences between males and females can be observed in the animal kingdom, especially among mammals? See, this is the the thing that the people who challenge the sex binary always ignore. They ignore nearly all of the other life forms on the planet. I mean, at one moment, they're quick to remind us that, oh, we're just an animal like any other. You know, we're nothing special. But then when it comes to biological sex, they put us in a completely different We're the only species that doesn't have biological sex. They never deny it in any other species. And all of these facts, which they ignore, help to explain why a group of talented middle school boys could dominate a WNBA team. Why the fastest woman at the Olympics has never been faster than the fastest man at the Olympics in any race or event ever in history. Why men dominate women athletically in nearly every measurable category, in nearly every sport, and always have since time immemorial. Why, in fact, every human society since the dawn of man has organized themselves around a recognition of the difference between the sexes and has tasked men with taking on the more physically challenging and dangerous roles. Now, it's not that that men are conditioned that way. It's that they are this way. They are bigger and stronger. And societies have recognized that and utilized those characteristics in a way that makes sense. Which is why you go all the way back uh, to to, primitive times. And what you're going to find is that uh, in most cases, the men are going out hunting and the women are at home taking care of the home. Um, You you aren't going to find cases where it's flipped around and the men are the homemakers and the women are the ones who go out hunting. That wouldn't make any sense because every society has noticed, well, these are the bigger, stronger people with more endurance, and so obviously they should be doing that. We're the only ones who've been confused about the subject. Only we're not really confused. The truth is still plain as day. It's just that the difference is that now we have a whole army of highly educated quacks and frauds trying to make us confused. And that is why they, and especially Whatever her name is, I forget her name now. At the at the Atlantic, are today, canceled, and that will do it for this portion of the show. As we move over to the members' block, hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.